In John chapter 2, 23 through 25, that would be the end of 2, John presents superficial faith. That's what we looked at last week. We looked at what it, what it means to be superficial in faith. Uh, the crowds uh, in Jerusalem saw Jesus' miracles and many believed, but their faith was only surface deep. It was motivated by selfish desires or something other than a heartfelt, uh, spirit-compelled love for Jesus. Uh, they wanted Jesus' power. They wanted Jesus' blessings. Uh, they wanted the things that Jesus could, could offer them or bring into their lives. But they had no interest in His mercy or in His forgiveness, in really the true reason why He came. And Jesus was therefore unwilling to entrust Himself to them because He knew what was in their hearts. It wasn't as if they were all going around saying, we have superficial faith, we really want you for what you can provide. Nobody was saying that. But Jesus is omniscient and knows all things. And so He can read our hearts. And He was reading their hearts and He knew that their testimony or whatever it was they were doing was not legitimate. So He did not give Himself over to them. Chapter 3, however presents the real deal, true conversion. So you see how it works. You got the fake stuff at the end of 2, and then in chapter 3, you see the real deal, the real stuff, true conversion. John tells us about Nicodemus and a conversation this fellow had with Jesus. Nicodemus was very likely from the crowd, the crowds that had watched Jesus perform all these miracles. He may have been one of the superficial believers. That seems to be the consensus by most uh, guys who study the Bible and write commentary. They believe that he was a part of that particular group. Nicodemus was impressed by Jesus' power, and he was curious. Seeing displays of his power wasn't enough for him. He wanted to talk with Jesus. He wanted more information, so he goes to him to seek, to ask questions and to seek or to obtain information. But Jesus knew what he really needed. As I already said, Jesus knew what was going on with him on the inside. And when this guy comes to Jesus to talk to him and ask questions, Jesus actually takes control of the conversation and then proceeds to unpack what true conversion looks like. John also tells us about an interesting conversation between John the Baptist and some of his remaining disciples, that's the latter part of John chapter 3. His disciples came to warn him about Jesus' ever-growing ministry. They basically said in a nutshell, everybody is going to him, you'd better do something about it. Basically, your church is dying, John, his church is growing. You, you should probably do something about that or be concerned about that. But John corrected them and in doing so, he displayed the attitude of a truly converted person. Chapter 3 is, is pretty straightforward. I would say it's chock full of doctrine and uh, challenging things to get our minds around, but it's, it's really straightforward in the way that it's written. Um, it, it basically shows four signs of true conversion. So a truly converted person will, will have these four signs. They will bear these four signs. And we're not going to be able to unpack all of them today because each one deser deserves our undivided attention. Uh, so we'll do a four-week mini-series within the series Believe. Here's the breakdown. Week one, we'll talk about a new birth. That's basically today. That's verses 1 through 13. Next week, we'll talk about, and this is all Lord willing, if we can get to this stuff, if God doesn't change things up. But week two, we'll talk about a new faith. That's 14 through 18. Week three, we'll talk about a new love. That's 19 through 21. 
And on week four, we'll talk about a new disposition or new attitude. That's 22 through 36, the rest of the chapter. So that's kind of the structure for the next four weeks starting today. This morning, we're going to look at the first sign of true conversion, a new birth in verses 1 through 13. This will be a seven-point sermon, so be ready to write stuff down. And I'm going to give you seven C's. You guys ready? All right, let's look at the first C. The first C is the characters. The characters, verses 1 through 2a. Uh, The text says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, comma, and we'll stop right there. So the first thing John does here is he introduces us to the two main characters of this narrative. Later he introduces another one who's John the Baptist. So right now he he brings our attention to the two people that are in this narrative, Nicodemus and Jesus. Those are the primary uh, individuals of this. We've already heard a little bit about Nicodemus over the last week or so. He was probably from the crowd, one of these superficial Believers. Here we are we're given a few more details. We're told about his profession, his job. Uh, his job title was Pharisee. How many of you have heard of the word Pharisee and you have a sense of what that means? Uh, I'll explain what a Pharisee uh, was. It was uh, the Pharisees, actually, as a whole, were an elite group of religious leaders. Uh, their name derives from a Hebrew verb meaning to separate. So they were thought of in this day as the separated ones. Why? Because of their just absolute zeal for the Mosaic law and for the traditions that they added to it. So back in Jesus' day, you had a group called the Pharisees. They were ultra-religious. They wore the garb. They spoke the religious language. They followed all the rules. They did everything by appearance. Uh, The appearance of everything they did was right and holy, and they really worked to separate themselves from everyone else in the culture. They didn't go and hide at monasteries. They were out in the public, uh, but they were still separating themselves, in a sense, from everyone else. In some ways, they thought that everyone else uh, was inferior to them. This group, the Pharisees, originated during the intertestamental period. That's that 400-year section between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's when they were formed during that time. They were an offshoot of the Hasidim. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Hasidim. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but the Hasidim was a pious group uh, who opposed that wretched, wretched Greek emperor Antiochus Epiphanes, probably one of the worst persecutors of of Israel ever. They opposed that particular guy and the Hellenization of, the, of Jewish culture, which means making Jewish culture Greek than Jewish. So this group kind of arose during that time, opposed that emperor, not physically, uh, but morally and in every other way. And they tried to gather Jews that were under that reign of terror, under their kind of mantra and stay away from that. That's a terrible situation. And so that's kind of how they came about. The Pharisees were different from their arch rivals, the Sadducees. That's another group that we see in the New Testament. And that's the thing too is you'll see Pharisees. It appears in the Gospels and stuff. You'll also see the word Sadducees. That's another group. Uh, They were contemporaries of the Pharisees, but they were not friends. 
the Sadducees were a wealthy, aristocratic, religious, political group, and they basically controlled the temple. They controlled the Sanhedrin and, and all things political, all things religious. So they were kind of the aristocratic um, senators or supreme court members, if you were, if you would, that just kind of oversaw all of that. And and they were theologically liberal, which is really interesting. You have the the theological liberals that are actually in power and in control. Uh, by liberal, I mean the opposite of conservative. They were very liberal, and one of the things they were known for is they rejected all things supernatural, angels, miracles, resurrection, everything. In fact, they only adhered to the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the writings of Moses. All the other scripture was uh, irrelevant to them. And so they were a bizarre group of very wealthy religious political leaders who only believed in part of the Bible. And as I said, they were in absolute opposition to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were quite different. They were from middle-class families. They were not this upper echelon in Israel. They were middle-class guys, and uh, they were not typically wealthy, but they were theologically conservative. And by that, I mean they believed the entire Torah. They believed the entire Old Testament Bible. They believed in all of Scripture. They believed in miracles. They believed in everything supernatural. They believed in all of that stuff, especially resurrection. And this put them at big-time odds with the Sadducees. Uh, at the time of Herod the Great, which would have been about 25 to 30 years, somewhere around there earlier than what we're looking at now, about 25 years back from the moment we're looking at here, the Pharisees' numbers grew to about 6,000. So this is not a unique little club with 12 or 15 members. This is not a bowling league or something like that. This is a very, very large group of elite religious leaders, 6,000 of them 25 years earlier than this point. They may have had more now. I don't know for sure. And that was according to the writings of Josephus, an earlier church historian. According to the Gospels, the Pharisees became Jesus' primary adversary. Now, they did conspire with other groups. You'll see uh, you'll see the Sadducees, and this is the thing, this is what's insane about this. They couldn't stand the Sadducees, but uh, they had a common enemy in Jesus, so they would band together against Jesus, right? What is it? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. You remember that saying? So they had that kind of uh, philosophical way of thinking. So despite the fact that they hated each other, they would come together to go against the common enemy, who was Jesus. And uh, they plotted and planned for how to kill him and uh, it was just a bad situation. So the Pharisees, the ultra-religious group, became the primary adversary of Jesus. They were always plotting and planning for how to take him out. John tells us, and this is what's interesting about this text, they've given you background, but John tells us that Nicodemus was one of these Pharisees. He was from that elite group. And not only does he tell us that he was one of these Pharisees, but he tells us that he was a ruler of the Jews. This does not mean royalty. It doesn't mean king. It doesn't mean prince or anything like that. It means that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was Israel's supreme court. That would be the way to look at that. It had 70 members, 
So quite a bit more members on that court than we have on our Supreme Court. I can't imagine they were ever able to get anything done with those many people and all the competing ideas and stuff. And you had not just Sadducees on that Sanhedrin, but you had Pharisees and scribes and others. Um, Amazing. The Sanhedrin was basically, their role was to rule over the affairs of the Jewish people. Now it's true that they had a king who did that in the highest sense. But the Sanhedrin really did rule over the affairs of the Jewish people, and the, the king worked in uh, connection with them and let them govern the affairs of the people. Uh, the Sanhedrin can be traced all the way back to the time of Moses. When Moses was leading the nation, he appointed 70 elders to help govern, uh, help him govern the people. You might remember that storyline back in the Old Testament. Jewish tradition refers to this body of elders as the first Sanhedrin. So he's not only a Pharisee, he's also a member of the Sanhedrin. He rules over the people, not like a king, but as a religious, uh, maybe a religio-political leader. I don't know, I just probably made that phrase up. Uh, And lastly, John tells us that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. Now there are all sorts of theories here on what this means. Some try to use it as a metaphor that, you know, Nicodemus was lost and his soul was darkened, so the darkness doesn't represent literal physical darkness. Uh, It's a metaphor or something like that to the darkness in his heart. I just think that's the biggest stretch in the world. I just think that, you know, that sounds really neat and it's far more spiritual to say that than he actually came at night because that doesn't mean anything. I mean, just he came at night. There's no spiritual inference there. I guess maybe there is, but I just, I don't know. I think that's a stretch. I don't think it has anything to do with the condition of his, his, his heart and who he was, even though he was darkened in his thinking. He was not a, a Christian by any means. He had not yet experienced the supernatural power of God, but, so his soul was darkened, but the idea of coming at night, I mean, he was a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were opposers of Jesus. So if you were a part of that group and you wanted to go talk to Jesus, how would you do that? You'd have to go when you're not going to be detected. You'd have to go at a time where others aren't paying attention or aren't watching, unless you're going with a band of Pharisees to chasten Jesus and to challenge Him. So the reason why He goes at night is because He's a part of this particular group and He wants to avoid detection. He does not want his peers to know what he's up to. Um, and some speculate and say, well, he, he was sent as uh, maybe a dignitary or something like that. He was sent as a representative of the Sanhedrin to go and, and talk to Jesus and challenge Jesus. Well, then if that's the case, why did he go at night? He could have went any time he wanted to go. He could have went in broad daylight because he would have been sent from his team. And if his team saw him, they'd, oh, he's going to go deal with what we talked about. So I just don't think any of that stuff holds water. Why did he go at night? Because he wanted to question Jesus, but because he wanted to avoid detection. Uh, I think at at this point in the narrative, and it's a historical narrative, these things actually happen. It's not just a fantasy tale or something. At this point in the narrative, Jesus was already on the Pharisees' hit list. They were already saying things about him and saying, this guy poses a threat Look at, and this is very early on in his ministry, but he was, they, were, they already had eyes on him, and they were already thinking of him as a target. 
And you just think about that, interaction with Jesus apart from a broader group on Nicodemus' part could be interpreted as siding with the enemy. And that could result for Nicodemus in disciplinary action, maybe even removal of his position, and that's not something he was willing to forfeit at this point. So he came at night because he wanted to hide the reality of him coming to Jesus. It does seem cowardly to us, doesn't it? Like, how cowardly for someone to come to Jesus at night. But we say that uh, as, I guess most of us in this room, but we, would, we, we think of it as a cowardly act because we're believers, and we wouldn't consider coming to Jesus at night. We, we wouldn't mind people seeing what we're doing. So that's our perspective, but we shouldn't think of him as really being cowardly. He doesn't have the Holy Spirit. He's not a legitimate believer or any of that at this point. His belief is superficial. I would say it like this. He does not have the, the will. He does not have the spine yet to lay it all on the line for Jesus because he, do, he does not yet possess the immeasurable greatness of God's power. Did you know that as a believer you have the immeasurable greatness of God's power in your life? God's great power is in you. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have that dunamis, dynamite resurrection power. Now, that's what gives us the boldness in these things to, to go out on a limb for Jesus, to do what we do for Jesus, and to not worry about what's going on around us. Well, obviously, Nicodemus doesn't have any of that yet at this point. So let's look at the second C. The first one was the characters. The second is the compliment. The compliment, right? Verse 2b... And this is Nicodemus. He has just gotten to, he found Jesus and he's now standing before him. And this is what he says to A or to B. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. What an interesting compliment. What an interesting statement. Now, uh, the right way to interpret this is that Nicodemus, he really doesn't know Jesus. He just knows what Jesus can do, and he's heard some of Jesus' message, but he doesn't really know him. He certainly isn't following him in the right way, but he does address him respectfully right here. Uh, this is, it's, a, it's a respectful sort of address, but it's certainly not holistic. It's not full. And, and, and the way that he approaches Jesus and what he says to Jesus reveals his lack of true conversion. Because he doesn't, frankly, he, he's respectful, but he doesn't address Jesus rightly. He doesn't use the right titles, right? He called Jesus rabbi and teacher. And the, the phrases are synonymous. Rabbi basically means teacher. But I think the better interpretation of the word rabbi is high teacher. It's someone who's a teacher above other teachers. So there's some respect there. That's a good acknowledgement. That's not an insulting kind of thing. But rabbi was a common title in that day. And it was primarily used and associated with the Pharisees. They loved to be addressed as rabbis or high teachers. So really what Nicodemus was doing here by calling Jesus rabbi as he was considering him an equal, he was saying, you're a peer. You know, you're one of my peers. You're one of my contemporaries. You're one of my peers. You're an equal to me. Now, now that is not true of who Jesus is, but if, if 
his cronies, if Nicodemus is cronies, they're not saying that Jesus is an equal. They're saying he's from Beelzebub, that he's satanic. So this is an improvement over what Nicodemus's partners and compadres would be saying about Jesus. So it's respectful, it's kind, but is Jesus an equal? Jesus is only an equal to those who have not experienced the supernatural power of God and understand who Jesus truly is right? He's only an equal. He's only a teacher. He's only a rabbi to those who don't truly know who he is. Respectful term, kind-hearted thing to be said, but it falls way short, way short of who Jesus actually is. He is not merely a rabbi or teacher come from God. He is God. He is God. So he can be rabbi, he can be teacher, but don't leave out the divinity. Very important. And Nicodemus deliberately leaves it out because he don't believe that about Jesus. And Jesus is not in any way equal to Nicodemus or to any man. You can't even compare Jesus to another flesh and blood human being. He is so far above all. He bears the title Lord with a capital L. So he he is not just a teacher. He's not just a rabbi. He's not just equal to men. Even though he came in in human form, he is not equal to men. He is superior because he is Lord. And these are things that Nicodemus has heard but is unwilling to acknowledge and give him the title. Nicodemus' compliment, the way that he presented, uh, the way that he complimented, the way he spoke with Jesus actually reveals his reason for coming to Jesus. He wanted to talk to Jesus about the signs, about the miracles. Look again at his compliment. We know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs. So he, this to me is a, a, just a nail in the coffin on the idea that he's part of that crowd, and he's one of the superficial ones. He was one of the people out there that saw the signs, but he was like, man, I want to just get to know him a little bit more. And so he goes to him and he wants to question him about his power, about those signs, about the miracles. It's obvious God is with you, Jesus, because nobody could do these things. So he's interested in that. He's fascinated with the power, fascinated with the miracles, and the buck stops there. He doesn't really care about anything else. just wants to talk about that. But... Jesus wasn't interested in discussing miracles. Jesus didn't care to talk about how this works or that works or what he can do or can't do in terms of those things. He he was not interested in obliging Nicodemus. He was not interested in answering his request the way that we would maybe think that he should have. Well, he just wants to talk to you about the miracles and tell him about your power. Tell him about what's wrong with that. No, Jesus wasn't interested in having that conversation with him at all. Jesus knew what was in Nicodemus's heart. This is another example of the omniscience here in this text, of the knowing of what is true and what is real and what is going on inside of a person, which God is the only one that has that power and ability. We have discernment. I can kind of tell what's going on with a person, but I can't see their heart. I can't see if they're truly knit and, and sewn into Jesus and they're really a part of the body. I can't. I can just kind of read the signs. I can't read the heart. Jesus knows what's going on with this guy. He knows what's in his heart. He knew 
that Nicodemus' understanding of salvation was incorrect. He knew this. He knew that his faith, that his belief was superficial. And Jesus, therefore, takes command of the conversation. He takes command of the situation. And he completely redirects him and begins to talk about something else. Okay? It's not that Jesus doesn't care about miracles or all that. He's going to talk about a different miracle here in this text, one that's far more important than the other ones. But he wants to address Nicodemus' real issue. And I think I just love that about our Savior, that he, he, he is really most interested in what's really going on with us. You know, we tend to have these ideas of what we need and, and this and that, and, and, but he really knows our needs. We go to him in prayer asking for something in particular, and he answers in a way that, that is contrary to what, to what we're asking for. We need to know that it's because he knows what our real needs are, right? He sees through all of it. And I love that about him. And it also frightens me because he knows the good, the bad, and the ugly. But that's okay. That should motivate me to walk in a way that is worthy of my high calling. So he redirects the conversa- conversation. Now let's look at the third C, the contradiction. The contradiction, verse 3. This is, where Nick, this, is where, this is where you're standing in front of somebody and you ask them a question, they give you an answer that has nothing to do with the question you just asked. And you're like, excuse me? You, do you, did you not hear what I said? I said something to you, and you just seem to think I said something else. And you're out. Oh, wait a minute, he's on to something. This is what's happening here. He just Jesus answered him. Oh, I, I'm really good at miracles. I can do all sorts of things. Wait till you see this. Oh, wait, that's not what it says. Verse three actually says, "Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God." What on earth does this have to do with what Nicodemus is doing there? Talk about missing the question, Jesus. No, Jesus didn't miss the question. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing because he knew exactly who Nicodemus is or was. Jesus begins with this this double emphatic, truly, truly. When you see this phrase, and I believe it only appears in the Gospel of John, and it appears 25 times, when you see that, that should trigger you to know that Jesus is about to say something that's really, really, really important, doubly important. That's not to say that Jesus said other things that weren't important, but what he's about to say here is of the highest importance. Because of what, uh, what was of the highest importance to Nicodemus was the miracles. Jesus is saying there's something far more important than what you're inquiring about. Listen, listen, is what he's saying. Pay close attention, double emphatic. And the subject in view here is, really, and I think this is why, the subject that Jesus brings up, he's talking about miracles, Jesus brings into, introduces another subject here, and, and the subject that, that he introduces here is, is how one enters the kingdom of God. Now, now your ears should perk up because that's a, that's a truly, truly important subject. This is how is one saved. This is how does one go to heaven. This is how does one enter the kingdom of salvation where God rules and reigns over His people. And I don't know if you understand the way that these things work, but that's in place right now. That's something that's coming, yet it's something that's here. If you're in Christ, you're in the kingdom. It's invisible, 
but we see expressions of it in the church and what have you. But it is something that is real. So, so he introduces a subject of highest importance. It's not just the kingdom. It's here's how you see the kingdom, how you enter the kingdom. This is why you got the double emphatic. This is why you have the truly, truly. He brings this subject right out here. This is big. This is big. The kingdom of God represents the kingdom of salvation, the spiritual realm where those who have been saved by the power of God now live under the rulership of God. Nicodemus, like the rest of his fellow Jews, eagerly anticipated that glorious realm. This is something that the Old Testament Jews and Jews today are waiting for. They don't understand it's here, but they're waiting for it. They think it's coming. These guys believed back then, and they still do today, that when Messiah actually appears, He will usher in this realm, this kingdom of God. Uh, They also believed, and this is the the Jewish mindset of Jesus' time, this is how Nicodemus would have been thinking, they also believed that being descendants of Abraham, you know, from the lineage of Abraham, they believed that, that observing God's laws, you know, all of God's laws, the Mosaic law and all the ordinances. They believe that performing external religious rituals, so being from Abraham, obeying the law and performing all these rituals, they believe that is what gained them entry into the kingdom of God. Today, even today, it is entirely based upon what they do. If I do X, Y, and Z, I will step over that threshold when Messiah comes. There's a couple things they don't understand. A, it's not what you do, and B, the kingdom's already here and Messiah already came. They don't get any of that. But Nicodemus' way of thinking is, ooh, he's talking about the kingdom. Well, I know I'm headed there because of who I am and what I do, and that's his default mode. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. i got to swap a page here. i got my pages out of order. I don't know how I did that. Basically, what Jesus does is he, right here in this statement, he totally contradicts Nicodemus' belief with a single statement. This is the grenade thrown into the bunker statement that blows everything apart in there. Just by saying, unless one is born again, he will not enter the kingdom. That right there is a full-fledged hurricane-level attack on Nicodemus's religion and beliefs. It's an assault on what he actually believes and what he's been taught his entire life, what he has adhered to his entire life. So this is big stuff. This is This is... It's offensive stuff for Nicodemus. Jesus essentially says the only way to see and enter the kingdom of God is through being born again. So right now Nicodemus is thinking, wait a minute, I've been doing a lot of stuff. What are you talking about? The only way to see and enter the kingdom is through being born again. Some translations say born of God. What does yours say? Born of God, born again. I like the phrase a new birth. And that's what I entitled this message, A New Birth. Unless one has experienced a new birth, he or she will not enter the kingdom of God. 
The theological term we use for this here is regeneration. Regeneration. Regeneration, by definition, is an act of God where God uses His power to bring a spiritually dead sinner to life. He literally causes them to be what? Born again. To be born from above. To be born of God. To experience a new birth. And it is what we call a monergistic act. You have monergism and you have synergism. Monergism means singular, mono. One participant, one person involved. Synergistic is two or more. So this act of being born again or even regenerated is a monergistic act, which means that it occurs independently of the human will and does not involve any effort from the recipient, nor does it require their permission. It is an intervention. It comes from God directly. The person really, quite frankly, at first doesn't even know what hit them. So it's not something that you sit there, God comes to us and says, I would really like to regenerate you. Here's ten reasons why. He gives you a quick ten-point sermon and then asks for your permission to do it. It's not the way it works. Of course, some will teach you that in other church circles. That's the way it works. Because they have the idea that if we don't grant God that right, then how can we really be true worshipers? Because we would have to make that decision on our own. Let me just tell you something right now. You, if you are not in Christ, you are dead. You are as dead as a corpse is on the ground. How can a drowned man bring himself, resuscitate himself? How can a corpse bring itself back to life? It cannot. And that's exactly how we are spiritually. We are dead. We are flatlined. There is no spiritual life there. So this is a, 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 an act of divine intervention, divine love. It's monergistic. God doesn't ask for our permission. If He did ask for our permission, anyone who says that they would willfully accept that has got a big-time issue and doesn't understand human nature. You don't get it. If you think that it's something that you can do, you don't understand your condition, and that's okay. You know, you, you need to learn about human depravity and what we really are on the inside. And, and quite frankly, you need to agree. You need to learn to agree with 1 Corinthians 2.14, which basically tells us that spiritually dead sinners will not under any circumstances accept the things of God because they're spiritually discerned. Now, I want you to think of a, a baby being born because this is actually the earthly metaphor that Jesus uses in this text. I want you, because, right, he said born again. He's, he's given us the idea of a birth. He's paralleling that with, with what happens on this side of glory between human beings. A, a mother gives birth to a child. He's likening to that. It's the metaphor that he's using here, and he'll build on it as he goes. What, how does a baby come about? A baby results from its parents' efforts, right? Two parents come together, they... You know what I mean? And then, then mama gets pregnant. You got a baby, right? Okay? You're like, this is a sexual ed course. I had no idea. Think of that. You've got conception. You have two people. You have conception. You have a, a fetus in that. You have a baby. Let me ask you a question. Baby choose to be conceived. No. Baby didn't have anything to do with it. 
Did the baby choose his or her parents? No. Baby didn't have anything to do with that. Baby didn't choose to be conceived. Baby didn't choose to enter the mom's womb. Baby didn't choose to grow up to nine months or whatever to be delivered. Baby didn't choose C-section over natural birth. Baby didn't choose name. I like the name baby. Baby didn't choose name. Baby didn't choose parents. Baby comes out, oh, I guess those are my parents. Cool. Baby doesn't have anything to do with any of it. Now, it is the same with being born again. It is the same with regeneration. We do not choose to be born again. Our Father made this decision for us, just as two parents made the decision for you. Or maybe they didn't make the decision. Somehow you got through there and they're still wondering how. It happens. We've got three kids. <laughs> Love them to death. I'm an accident father? No. You were providentially ordained. I don't mean that. I didn't want to humiliate my children. I love my children. They're a gift from the Lord, right? And really, ultimately, who causes a natural birth? God. He's sovereign. It's part of His providential plan. So our Heavenly Father makes this decision. He made this decision to give us birth and to give us life, just as earthly parents made a decision. You see how it works? What part did a baby play in any of that? Nada. What part do we play? According to some circles, all of it. It's all up to us. Oh, really? How does that work? It doesn't work. Earthly birth. You don't understand how earthly birth works? Same thing. Same parallel. When a baby is born, a new life emerges that did not previously exist. Right? A new life emerges, did not previously exist. The baby is a brand new being who begins to grow to look like the parents. And here's the parallel. When a sinner is born again through divine decree and power and initiative, through the work of the Holy Spirit, a new life emerges that did not previously exist. Okay, at that point, that person passes from dark to, to light from death to life. They may have lived physically prior to that moment of being born again, but they were not alive spiritually. They are given spiritual life and a new spiritual life. That person as a whole, really, because you really don't want to disconnect the spirit from the rest of the man, becomes a new individual. Or as it says in 1 Corinthians, a new creation. You see the parallels. The born-again person is a brand-new being, and here's the kicker. Here is the kicker. As a baby is born, begins to eat and grow, becomes like the parents in their looks and attitude and behavior and all that, right? Because they more is caught than taught at that stage. The same is true of the person who is born of God. They will begin to manifest His qualities the characteristic things that characterize him and all that, they will become like their heavenly daddy. It's one of the biggest signs right there of true conversion. If somebody has been born again, they will become like their heavenly parent, the father. In fact, it says in Ephesians, they will be conformed to the image of the son. The father takes that new life and begins to mold and shape through the power of his word and through the power of the Holy Spirit, conforming that 
uh, new, newly saved, newly born again guy or gal to the image of Jesus. They become more and more like Jesus as life goes on, as God works in their hearts. Are you guys getting this? This is what it means to be born again. It's more because he, he describes more, but this is it. When you think of being born again, parallel that with a physical birth. And then know without a doubt there is no way for the person to be involved in that process. Only the parents, or in our case, only God the Father. How wonderful is that to know that you were dead in your sin and yet God the Father loved you from eternity. And we're not even talking about the whole picture here. There's stuff that predates regeneration. You've got, you've got forelove, foreknowledge. You've got election. You've got predestination. You've got these other things. that have, You've got calling. There's all these awesome things that happen when God saves a person. Some of these things were planned in eternity past, but when it becomes manifest, it's, it's regeneration, it's calling and all that. But just think about that for a moment, that while you were dead in your sin, Christ died for you. God had planned in eternity past to make you alive, to do for you what you can never do for yourself, to bring you to life. It's amazing. I don't understand why people have such an issue with that. I just don't. Maybe because they think it excludes some people. I'll tell you this, it excludes no one whom God has chosen to save. And that's a lot of people according to Revelation 7, 9 and all these other texts. Well, it doesn't sound fair because obviously he doesn't cause that in everyone. Well, he doesn't. And who said he's obligated to save anyone? It is a miracle that he has chosen to save anyone, any of us. And if you think that he owes it to us, you don't understand human nature again. I was dead, a walking robotic corpse. I was a zombie spiritually, and yet he came in power and brought me to spiritual life. How can anyone think that that person, because he did that for them and intervened, that they're not going to be a true worshiper? That is the definition of true worship, knowing that you could do nothing for yourself and that he, by grace, did something for you. I would argue the opposite. You're calling me not a true worshiper because he did that for me and I didn't do it for myself? I can't do anything for myself. I can barely tie my shoe. <laughs> he chose to give us life to make us born again through the Spirit. You must understand, you must understand that the goal of salvation, there is a there is a, a, a greater goal in mind. And we, we basically take it, and, and, and the goal for us on our side is, is golden streets and mansions and heaven and all this great stuff. I mean, that's great stuff. That's the goal to us. That's not the goal to God. The goal to God is to make us like God, to make us like His Son, to conform us to the image of His Son. No, we don't take up the deity like the Mormons teach. We don't become God in that sense. We'll never be holy, 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 but he makes us holy. There is a separation between God and his, his and saved people. Believe me, he transcends, he's beyond all things. But he still makes us like him nonetheless in his character, in his attitude. If we're born of him, we will learn to be patient. We will learn to be merciful and forgiving in all the things that he represents and just righteous so the goal of salvation is to make us like god not in his deity but in his character and attitude think of it like this god is holy his children should be holy that means set apart different from the world 
God is righteous. His children should be righteous, right? If you're born of God and He's holy, then you're going to be holy. If you're born of God and He is righteous, you're going to be righteous. Perfectly, not at all times, but you've got to be righteous. You're going to want what is right and what is pleasing to your father, just as kids want to please their parents when they're very young. Or I don't know where that period is. It seems like they just, their head spin, they did pea soup at about 13. They no longer care about their parents' will. But there's a period there where the parent's like, oh, he really wants what I want. I really like this kid. You're going to be like that with your heavenly father he's holy you want to be holy he's righteous you want to be righteous he's merciful you want to be merciful he's forgiving you want to be forgiving blah 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 it goes on and on and on romans eight twenty nine is where we hear about being predestined to be conformed to the image of his son there's the goal of salvation to be made like jesus so you know i just put it like this if you say you're following jesus and you're not becoming like jesus you ain't following jesus there's something wrong. You can't follow him and not be like him. Amen? And it's not because of what you're doing. Don't all of a sudden try to adjust your behavior. Maybe it's because you haven't been born again. You haven't experienced what we're talking about. Jesus' point here is pretty simple, right out of the gate. Here's a guy who's been earning his way the whole time. Can you imagine what he must be thinking right now? You mean to tell me it doesn't have to do with me? Yes, that's what I mean. I don't like you. Because it's all he knows. Jesus' point is pretty simple. Those who have been born again will begin to resemble the one who gave them life. And it is they who will see the kingdom. You ain't going into the kingdom if you're not like the king. It's that simple. And as I said, as a person claims to follow Jesus, but they are not becoming like Jesus, it could be that they have not been born again. I like what John Murray said. He put it like this. Regeneration is the renewing of the heart and mind. And a renewed heart and mind must act according to their nature. Man, if you've been given a new heart and mind because of regeneration, you should be different. How many people do you know, and maybe you're one of them, or how many people have you met that just, hey, I love Jesus, I prayed a prayer, I did all this stuff, and they're exactly how they were the day before and the year before and all that. There's been no change. You can't be born of God and remain Phil. You're going to be a different Phil. You see? That's how it works. That is how it works, my friends. So the question now is, did Nicodemus accept Jesus' teaching? What was he thinking? <laughs> Look at the fourth C, the condescension. Verse 4, some would say the confusion. That's not what's going on here. He wasn't confused. He knew exactly what Jesus was saying. He didn't like it. Here's how Nicodemus responds to this, this point of being born again and entering the kingdom. He says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? <laughs> At first, it looks like he didn't understand what Jesus's, he didn't understand Jesus' metaphor. He didn't understand his point. It looks like he's confused. He was not confused. Nicodemus understood Jesus, but he wasn't willing to yield. He wasn't willing to accept what Jesus said. He wasn't willing to believe the truth that Jesus just spoke to him. And what a privilege Nicodemus had. He was actually offended because Jesus basically told him that he had to start over. Nicodemus is an older guy. He had spent his entire life 
working his way up the ladder in Judaism. That's his religion. He'd even made it onto the Sanhedrin, which was next to impossible. He was a ruler of the Jews over the people. This guy is one of the highest religious leaders in his community, in his nation. And here you've got a 30-year-old guy telling him you've got to start over. Boy, if I wasn't born again, I'd probably use a little condescension. You mean to tell me I need to go back into my mother? What kind of weirdo are you? Oh, he understands what he's saying, but he responds to Jesus condescendingly. He doesn't like what Jesus said. He's like, I think Jesus is preaching Calvinism. I don't like that. That sounds ugly. Actually, what Jesus was preaching is Jesusism. Long before John Calvin was a twinkle in his parents' eyes. A lot of people don't like what we're looking at here. They don't like it. They don't like it because it lays siege to their works. They don't like it because it lays siege to their will. The will that they think they have, that they can incline themselves to God. They hate it. Nicodemus hated it for all those reasons. And he's condescending here. He talked down to Jesus. Come on, man. How can a man, an old man like me, be born again? What am I got to do? Re-enter my mother's womb and then come out again? Preposterous. The idea of, of giving up his religion, the idea of forfeiting and giving up his works and his, his earning was absolutely inconceivable, totally offensive to him. And Je Jesus totally disregards his condescension and bores down on the subject, right? Look at the fifth C, the clarification, verses 5 through 8. Jesus answered, truly, truly, there it is again, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He takes it further. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Verse 7, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Then he gives this awesome illustration. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or from where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Again, we are alerted by a double truly. This time Jesus basically rephrases what he said earlier about being born again. But this time he uses terminology Nicodemus would be more familiar with. Water and spirit. You see them in, uh, in verse 5. Water and spirit mentioned there. Often refer symbolically in the Old Testament to spiritual renewal and cleansing. Jesus definitely had Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27 in mind here. A passage Nicodemus would have been very familiar with, probably had it memorized. Because these guys did memorize their Bibles. And this text describes Israel's restoration to the Lord by uh, a new or by the new covenant which God, where God in this new covenant will wash and cleanse and regenerate His, His people through the Holy Spirit. That's what that text deals with. It's a prophetic text to talk about the new covenant that Messiah would bring where God will wash and cleanse and give His people new hearts and make them new and give them the Holy Spirit so they can obey His will and all of that. Jesus' point was unmistakable. Without the washing of the soul, a cleansing accomplished only by the Holy Spirit, no one can enter the kingdom of God. So, being born again or regenerated has to do with being washed and cleansed by the Holy Spirit. Being born again, that's what it means. It means to be 
possessed. The Holy Spirit comes into the person, washes, applies Jesus' atoning work, cleanses them of all their sin, and, and manifests His presence there. So they're a new, He can help that new creation move along and grow into the likeness of Christ. That's what happens. And he just reiterates what he said in the, in the earlier verse, but he just expands on it here. Okay, born again, you think it has to do with going in back into the womb and all that? doesn't have to do that. It has to do with being washed and cleansed by the Holy Spirit, what Ezekiel prophesied about. That's what he's saying. Jesus continued to, or continued by further emphasizing monergism, God alone, in regeneration. Here he gives... Two examples in this awesome set of verses. First, he compares flesh with spirit. Flesh, and I, I think the right way to think of flesh and what Jesus had in mind here is human nature. So flesh or human nature has no power or ability to transcend and go beyond itself. In other words, human nature is limited to human nature. Flesh can only produce more flesh does not have flesh and, and, and human nature does not have the ability to produce a spiritual result. In fact, it can't even speak the language. It doesn't understand any of that. It does not have flesh. Human nature does not have the ability to produce spiritual birth. You think of the baby being born and not choosing its parents or be born. It's the same thing. It has none of this ability. But the Holy Spirit is a spirit. He has the ability to produce spiritual results. He has the ability to enter our flesh, our human nature, and regenerate our minds and hearts, thus causing a new birth. Second, he compares wind with spirit. The wind cannot be controlled. It blows where it wishes. And though its general direction can be known, where it comes from and where it is going cannot be precisely determined. Nevertheless, the wind's effects can be observed, right? You look at a tree, you see the leaves blowing, you see plants bending. You know it's there. You can observe its effects. The same is true of the work of the Holy Spirit. His sovereign work of regeneration in the human heart and mind can neither be controlled nor predicted. Yet its effects can be seen in the lives of those who are born of the Spirit or born again. So Nicodemus comes back to Jesus with this idea of going back in the womb. He says, none of that's going to work because none of that will produce spiritual birth. Only the Spirit can do it. And he's like the wind. You can't control him. You can't anticipate him. You can't direct him. You can't do anything. When you see churches advertising healing services and all this, they're trying to direct the Holy Spirit to do what they want. Nobody controls the Holy Spirit. He is God. Doesn't mean he doesn't show up and do things. He can. But the idea of, of putting on your calendar, in four months we're going to have a healing service where the Holy Spirit's going to come and, and heal a whole bunch of people. As if God's on the phone up there saying, what do you want me to do on that date? Let me mark my calendar. The stupidest thing I've ever heard of. He's like the wind. He cannot be predicted. He cannot be directed. He's not like a fan you can turn on yourself and feel his blow. He does what he does according to divine prerogative. This is the idea of monergism here again. That's the example. It's God alone. 
It's God alone in the birth. It's God alone in the cleansing. It's God alone in the, in the spiritual renewal and in the impartation of the Spirit and the act of regeneration. It's God, it's God, it's God, Nicodemus. It's not you. Uh, these are just artillery shells landing on this guy. I just came to inquire about the miracles. I need to go get a sandwich and a Tylenol. He's getting blown to pieces. I'll tell you, Nicodemus was no doubt cringing at this point because Jesus had completely decimated his theology. He decimated the theology of human involvement in salvation and basically ruined his ability to earn his way into the kingdom of God. It's not going to be by what you do, Nicodemus. I see you've got the clothes. You say all the right things. I know who you are. You must be born again. You're not going to get in with your current, in your current situation. Oh, he, was, he, was, he was angry. Let's look at the sixth C, the challenge. Here it is, the challenge, verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? This isn't, this is so interesting, Jesus. How can this be? This is, how can this be? He's challenging Jesus on what Jesus is teaching him. Although he was a renowned teacher, Nicodemus proved to be a poor learner. Some of the greatest teachers are terrible learners, which means at the end of the day, they're really not great teachers. You have to be a learner if you're going to be a teacher. And he was not a good learner. His question here indicates that he had made little progress since verse 4. He wasn't coming along on board. Can you blame him because it's an act of God? Despite Jesus' further clarification in verses 5 through 8, Nicodemus still did not want to accept what he was hearing. How can this be? Say it isn't so. He could not let go of his legalistic religious system and, and realize that salvation was a sovereign, gracious work of God's Spirit. It goes to show that Fallen man is determined to work his way into the kingdom of God no matter what. Right? This guy, is in, this guy is in front of the greatest teacher and rabbi who's ever lived, God himself in flesh, Jesus. Jesus is teaching him directly. Can you imagine what that would have been like? And he, he's ultimately concerned with his upbringing, his religion, and all that he's done absolutely thoroughly not in, in just interested in what Jesus is saying and quite offended by it. And I, I, I think that's just a, a, it's, it's a telling sign of the human heart in active rebellion against God. We are, before Christ, so determined to have it our way. If I want to give myself birth, I will. That's weird. If I... I I followed Jesus. I made a decision for Jesus. I did this. I did that. I, 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 I. You didn't do jack. You, you, you know what you did? I love what R.C. Sproul says. He says, yeah, we did something. We were a participant in it. We played the role of sinner. <laughs> Amen. The moment we begin to attribute ability or something to ourselves is the moment we have left the gospel. Even in just, a, just one little... I made a decision. It's not gospel. 
I chose to follow Jesus, not gospel. That's Islam. That's other religions. Because in all the other religions, we're, we're, we're doing it. It's up to me. Not in Christianity. It's God. It's God. He challenges him. He, he does not want to give in to this. And I'll tell you what, he really believed he was going to earn his way into the kingdom. But I will tell you this without a shadow of a doubt, the doors, the gates remain locked to those who try to come in that way. You ain't getting in. They got sensors. Beep. Like, you know, you shoplifted. Ah. I think there's a chute that goes right down to hell. You just... I'm trivial, trivializing it. It's much worse than that. You're not going to get it. You are not. You will not. Just listen to me. You will not see the kingdom of God if you believe that it's going to be based on what you do and how good you are. You will not see it. That's not the gospel of America. The gospel of America says earn your way, you do this. It's all based on merit. You're not going to get in. You won't get in. You will not get in unless you've been born again. And when you, when you really preach the gospel that it really is all God and you played the role of the sinner, people will say, even those who are in the church will say, how can this be? How dare he say those things? I have worked hard my whole life. And... Seventh C. That was the challenge. Now we're looking at the critique. 10 through 13, Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Double emphatic, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. I have told you earthly things and you do not believe. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And he says this, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus critiqued Nicodemus. He called into question his ability to teach, to lead. If Nicodemus doesn't understand biblical salvation, this is all in the Old Testament as well. It's not just some new fancy thing here. If he doesn't understand salvation according to even his own Bible, how can he teach and lead God's people? His teaching will be chock full of errors and he will lead people astray, right? If the teacher doesn't get it right and he comes and stands in a pulpit every Sunday and he preaches a false gospel, whether people realize that or not, they're going to pick up on that and they're going to start believing that stuff. They're going to start acting on that stuff and living out that stuff, put their trust and assurance in that stuff. I'll tell you what, God does not take this lightly. He doesn't take my role lightly, the role of the elders here, anyone who preaches the word. In Hosea 4, 6, God rebuked the priesthood for this very thing. He declared, my people are destroyed from lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you as my priests. Jesus is doing that with Nicodemus. How can you be a teacher and not understand biblical salvation? You just look at that truly, truly there again. From that point, Jesus proceeded to admonish Nicodemus, correct him. He basically says, we know what we are talking about here. 
What I'm telling you, we know what we are talking about. You don't know what you're talking about. We know what we are talking about. The we that you see there in the verse represents Jesus, the disciples, and very likely John the Baptist, who understood the gospel. They understood the new birth, and they testified to it. But the Pharisees and their fellow Jews were ignorant of the new birth and unwilling to accept the testimony of Jesus, the disciples, and John the Baptist. They didn't want to hear it. Case in point, Nicodemus. In verse 12, Jesus steps it up and rebukes him. Nicodemus' unwillingness to accept Jesus' earthly example of the new birth proved that he was unwilling to accept the heavenly truth of regeneration. Jesus then assured Nicodemus of his authority on the subject. You're right, he already told him, we know what we're talking about. But then he, he backs up his testimony about true salvation by paralleling to heaven. He tells Nicodemus that no person has ever ascended to heaven and descended from heaven except for himself, the Son of Man. The books that are out there talking about this person going to heaven for 90 minutes or this person doing that, garbage. Jesus says it right here, no one has ever been and returned. Never. It's never happened, only he's done it. Only he came from there and came down, only he goes back. There are people that go from here to there, but they don't come back and tell you, I saw a bunch of light, I saw my grandma, her teeth were perfect. This is the garbage that people are coming up with today. It all sounds good and it's warm and fuzzy. It's garbage. Jesus said, nobody's ascended and descended, or vice versa, except the Son of Man. That's a universal truth for all time. And what does that prove? It proves that he's divine because that's only something that God can do. That's something the angels can do too, but they don't understand God's full plan of salvation the way Jesus does. He's part of the architecture of it. He's saying that nobody has ascended and descended. Thus, I have. I am the Son of Man. I'm God. I, I, based on my ability to go back and forth, it proves my deity, proving my point to you about being born again. That's what he's saying to Nicodemus. Jesus possesses omniscience. That means he has a full, unhindered, unadulterated knowledge of God's plan of salvation. He even, in eternity past and in eternal counsel, volunteered himself to be the Lamb for you and I. He knows salvation inside and out. So when he speaks about salvation, he speaks with authority and perfection. We can trust what he says. This is a rebuke on Nicodemus. You base what you do and what you think on human authority. I am from heaven. I am from the place of salvation. You know, no, no, you know not what you speak of. That's what he's saying. Begin to wrap it up. I like this uh, commentary from MacArthur. He says, there were two sides to Nicodemus' unbelief. Intellectually, while he acknowledged Jesus to be a teacher sent from God, he was unwilling to accept him as God. Spiritually, he was very reluctant to admit that he himself was a helpless sinner, since that was unthinkable for, for proud members of the Pharisees, the self-righteous, self-confessed religious elite of Israel. Further, he was a privileged member of the Sanhedrin and thus viewed as a prominent spiritual leader by the people. To humble himself to admit that he was in spiritual darkness and needed to come to the light of true salvation and righteousness would have been to confess his sinfulness and lack of righteousness. Like many who were impressed by Jesus' miracles, 
Nicodemus refused to commit himself to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Nicodemus, at this point in the narrative, wanted to keep his religion, wanted to keep his beliefs that he was good enough, wasn't interested in what the Lord taught. Closing. The first sign of true conversion is a new birth. According to John 3, I want you to know there's an order here represented in John 3. There are other signs of salvation or true conversion, and this one comes first because it is the starting point for everything, at least when it's manifested in the life of a person. There are things that predate this election predestination. I talked about that. But the new birth, a new birth, is the starting point for everything. In other words, faith and repentance come after. And they're even listed in this text after the new birth, aren't they? John 3.16. John 3.15, those who believe. John 3.16, those who believe. There's faith. New birth comes first. John Murray writes, Regeneration is the beginning of all saving grace in us, and all saving grace in exercise on our part proceeds from the fountainhead of regeneration. We are not born again by faith or repentance. We repent and believe because we have been born again. It's the starting point for everything. And my question to you is very simple. Have you experienced a new birth? It won't be hard to tell. Have you been born again? Have you been regenerated by the Holy Spirit? If we respond to Jesus like Nicodemus did in this text, it's pretty obvious it hasn't happened. We are not being made like our Heavenly Father and conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus. It's pretty obvious it hasn't happened. If we do not believe in Jesus as Lord and as Savior, and if we have not taken a posture of submission to Him as Lord, it's pretty obvious it hasn't happened. It's pretty easy to evaluate where you're at. And if we examine our lives and conclude that we haven't experienced a new birth, but, but suddenly, suddenly, because we've maybe heard about it for the first time, but suddenly we, we realize we're really interested in that. Maybe it's something that right now, I, I don't think I've experienced that. You're saying this to yourself, I don't think I've experienced a new birth because I really don't see myself as being different. I don't see a moment in time where I became different, where I'm becoming like my Heavenly Father, where I was born again. I, I don't think that's happened. But if you say inside of yourself, I, I kind of want that, I'm interested in that, I think that's what I want to happen. Is there something you can do to make it happen? No! There's nothing you can do to make it happen. But I would say this. The, the fact that you're interested probably proves that it's already happened and it happened right now. Or you're in process. Maybe there's extra labor involved. I think it's instant. If you believe you have an experience but you desire it, it could very well be that it's happening right now. The Holy Spirit could be regenerating you as I speak. Your desire could be evidence of the Holy Spirit's supernatural presence and work in your heart and mind. 